Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here from a chilly but rather fair Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London in similar conditions. Later on in the podcast, we've got a very important appeal from Mike Atherton on behalf of the MCC Foundation in aid of a very, very good cause. But now it's an enormous pleasure to introduce our guest for today. 60 years ago, it was one of the thrills of my life to see our guest walking out to the crease. And it's exactly the same today, because our guest today is none other than former England captain, Ted Dexter. Ted, welcome. Welcome, Ted. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You've been a hero of mine ever since that 70 at Lords, when I must have been about seven years old, when you took apart that brilliant West Indian attack in one of the most exhilarating innings of all time. I saw it too. Same thrill. Well, it was pretty good doing it, I must admit. You were LBW to Sobers. You were just getting going when Sobers had you LBW. What was going on there? You, was there a lapse of concentration? Very, very fine bowler, Gary. I would have um, reviewed it in modern days, but in those days when the umpire raised his finger, you walked off. Because any time left arm over to right hand bat, there's always that little chance of it pitching outside the leg stump. Yes. You can see that now. Time and time again, bowlers, they're sure they've got the chap long OBW. And I've already said pitched outside leg, pitched outside leg, but then they review it and it's pitched outside leg, so you can't be up. It was one of the great test matches of all time, wasn't it, that one? We had Kadri coming in at the very end with his broken arm. Yes, amazing. And all four possible results off the last ball. That's trapsy true. That doesn't happen very often. Or win win for either side, as it was, it was a draw. I think we should pay a little tribute, shouldn't we, to David Allen, who actually took those last deliveries from Westall when um, Cowdery went to the crease. Cowdery was at the non-striker's end, wasn't he, fortunately for him. Very cool was our David. He was always quite laid back. (laughs) Very good bowler. Was, wasn't he? Ted, before we go further, you're involved yourself with the MCC Foundation, aren't you? You're donating, I think, the um, proceeds of your new book, 85 Not Out, um, to the Foundation, aren't you? Yes, I'm donating all my personal gains. Um, Publishers get their bit, and my excellent helper with the writing, Peter Burden, he gets his bit, but my bit... I've been sending cheques quite regularly already to uh, the MCC Foundation. I have to say that is the generosity of of spirit which has characterised your entire career, sir. Thank you. Ted, I'd like to begin by picking up one passage in the book which really struck me because it was about one of my earlier heroes, Frank Worrell. You give a description of Frank Worrell coming out to bat against you, against Cambridge University in 1957. He was very dark and very handsome, upright and masterful, his cricket whites immaculate with pristine new gloves, carrying a brand new bat as he strode across the rich green sward of the Fenner's ground towards the wicket. It was a great entrance, and I aspired then and there to emulate his presence and the aura it created. Sadly, I don't believe I ever came close well, Ted, I think you were too modest there because, believe me, you, you had an aura when you walked out to the wicket and I could, you know, I, it, it, it used to make bowlers and fielders sink in their, in their places. <laughs> yes, I mean, I wasn't as handsome as Frank. He was a splendid-looking guy. But I think it, it sort of cemented for me the idea that when you walk out to bat, you, you want to make it look as though you're the boss. You know, you've come here to do a job of work and... Devil take the hindmost. Miss Mushtag Mohammed said that too, didn't he? He said he always marched out to the wicket in a very determined way. If you sort of straggled out, you already surrendered to the um, there, to the opposition. One or two um, who Keith Fletcher was a damn good player, but he used to walk out sort of trailing his battle on the ground, his head down. <laughs> he didn't look as they perhaps he was trying to kid the bowlers. Who are the other? Who are the contemporary figures? You'd say. 
inspire awe in their opponents. I'm sure Ben Stokes does, that's for sure. But obviously Coley, Smith, they're the, they're the three top men at the moment. Carrying on with the subject of auras, I mean, there are several encounters with, with uh, Don Bradman in, in your book. Did he uh, have a, an aura even in retirement? Well, he was clearly very um, focused, uh, a very bright guy. He had a very good business career after he fin- played, finished his cricket. Very tough captain. And um, at the time I really got my comeuppance, when I made an appointment with him, we sat at the cricket and I'd been watching the way the cricket was going with the West Indians who were just playing full fast bowlers and the overrated dropped to 12 overs an hour. And I, I said, because the Don was one of two major players in the organisation of the world game, Gabby Allen in England and the Don in Australia, they were the two bosses. And he just shot me down in flames. He said, if, if that's the worst thing that's happening to the game, that would be a good thing. And then he started off on all, all his other problems and all the difficulties and keeping the game going, etc. So I never got a word in Edways after that. He was a, a lot of people say what a formidable intellect Don Bradman had, and um, you know that he could have applied himself to almost anything he wanted to. A golfer too. He was a scratch golfer. Hmm. I had one game with him, by which time he was two handicap and I was four handicap, I think. And we had a hard match, which was on the scorecard, actually. You were born in Italy uh, and, in fact, brought up in Mussolini's for quite some time, in Mussolini's Italy. Ted, what what were your family doing in Italy? My dad was sent out to Italy, to Milan, to do a recce for Birmingham Vasey and Foster Insurance Brokers and to make a report on what was happening there. And they approved his his report, and they they said, "Well, w- would you like to go down there and represent us?" And he off he went. Quite a young young man. I mean, he was in the right through the First World War. He won his MC at the Somme. Gosh. And um, and then he went down to Italy and made a huge success of it, and built up a very very fine business. Became a very wealthy man. I left Italy when I was four and a half. So I have no recollection of life in Italy before, you know, because the war came along. We all had to get the hell out of Italy in a big hurry. But I'm, I, I don't remember any of that. My first recollection of life was back in England, sitting in a little, funny little Morris car with my mum driving my brother and me all the way up to Scotland. And no, all the um, signposts had all been taken down. And she had never driven further than going to the shops and back in her life. So that, but I think that's why I remember this particular journey so well, really. That Sounds like it must have taken several weeks. <laughs> well, I'm sure we must have stayed somewhere on the way. Can't have done it all in a day, that's for sure. Um, but I don't remember that. All I remember is that what we did have was a, the, the AA produced a, a roll for a journey. And they gave it to you and you read it and it said 500 yards, turn left. There's no signposts. Mm. So, uh, and I remember this little boy sitting in the front and saying, Mum, Mum, turn left, turn left. You can't be here. Yes, you must turn left. And we turn into a farmer's yard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. A, a scene that's repeated many times with, um, I'm sure, with many children in, in many other cars. Ted, why were you off to Scotland? Oh, because my, my dad, against all the odds, I mean, he was beyond combat age, obviously in the Second World War, having fought in the first one. But they picked him up because they knew he, he spoke Italian. Now, he didn't speak Italian that well, ever, but well enough. Uh, but in those days, English people, they didn't speak foreign languages, you know, the shower over the channel and <laughs> tend to like, try and learn French. They just spoke English rather louder when they got there. <laughs> at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but he got picked up because he, and he was, in the weirdest way, he was um, snared into the RAF intelligence and was posted to Bomber Command 
in Stranraya. And um, so my mum and my elder brother John and I, we, we were tootling along in the car to go and be somewhere near him. The only trouble was that he was then posted to Northern Ireland, we went there, then he was posted to South Wales and we went there. And then finally he was posted to Egypt. We didn't follow him to Egypt, but he was mm -hmm. away for three years. So he went, he's a remarkable man, isn't he? Because he fought, fought, fought through World War One, getting a, an MC, and then through World War Two as well. He's one of, he's a real hero, your father. Well, he was a wonderful man, absolutely. Straight as a die, never, never a bad word had been anybody, except with some one exception. If anybody was trying to get me down when I was playing cricket, he would come out fighting in my defence. Um, I, ca I can tell this one, I think. The MCC started to worry about, wh when I was in Australia in 62-3, they worried that I, I was doing some work with the press and that I was breaching my contract as to what I could say and what I couldn't. And MCC ran everything in those days. And the president was a military gentleman, an upright military gentleman, as they tended to be in those days. And he was known to have a, a huge knowledge of desert plants, particularly cacti. And my father said, General Sher, I'd, I'd, I'd like to put his cacti up somewhere where he wouldn't feel very comfortable. <laughs> 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 so he stood up. This was a public statement, was it? Well, I don't know how far it got, but it amused me. Do you remember which military gentleman it was in 1962-3? I'm sure you can look it up. I think we're going to go really look it up. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up. The man who was going to get a cactus up. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to look it up right now. Yep. It was, um, yes, it was, um, here it is, Ted. It's, um, uh, it's Lord Nugent. Lord yeah, Newton Lord was Newton. the man who was going to receive the cactus where it, where it hurt. Yep. It was a very grand MCC because the Duke of Norfolk was the chief coach or something on that tour, wasn't he? He was a tour manager. And Lord Nugent. He was the manager. He was on the MCC committee. Lord Nugent, who would have been in the chair. Then, uh, now, now we come to the matter of the management of the team going to Australia in 1962. And before anybody could say anything, his grace, the Duke, said, well, I, I, I could do it if you like. Of course, being the premier Earl of England, and it's, he said, well, thank you very much, my lord, and we'll move on to, to the next item on the agenda. And, but strangely enough, it had a wonderful effect because the Australians were fascinated by near royalty and it meant that literally our team, et cetera, tended to be on the front page, not in the sports pages, <laughs> because of the, his grace, the Duke of Norfolk. Well, they had a duke in the shape of the Duke of Norfolk. And if you, of course, had a peerage by then, you were <laughs> Lord Ted. Um, <laughs> and the duke uh, observed, did he not, that he found that you treated him as if he was one of your under-gardeners. What, what, what led him to make this remark? Well, I'm often accused of having this sort of lordly air. It, it doesn't feel like that to me, but if that's the way it comes over, you know, tough. I mean, it's better than coming over meek and mild, isn't it? Well, there must be more to it than this. Where did, where did the Duke make this remark about you treating him like an undergardener? Well, I treated one of the Dons at Radley like an undergardener. <clears throat> So it was, it, was, <laughs> it was obviously my won't. You did, didn't you? You asked him to, um, you, I think I'm right in saying, Ted, get correct if I'm wrong, you were at a party and you'd suddenly remembered that, you didn't, that you'd forgotten to give the Radley score to the, um, to the sports pages, the newspaper. That's right. So I rang him up and it was, I am a gilliot. <laughs> it was always, a, you know, schoolboys always take off certain people. Ivor was known to have a rather sort of drawly voice. And, and uh, anyway, I called him up on the phone and said, look, I'm sorry, Ivor. What have you done now, boy? <laughs> I've forgotten to send the scores. Could you do it? 
I said to other people, Lord Edward called me the other day. It stuck. It stuck. <laughs> you were already Lord, e- uh, Lord Edward by the time you'd left Radley. Now, how did the Duke defend you, or did he defend you, when the, um, the, when the, the Aussie press went for you in a big way while you were skippering that team? Oh, he was marvellous. He's, he's a lovely man. I mean, I knew him. I knew him pretty well before he was manager out there because he ran Ascot and um, we used to get very nice tickets to go to Ascot. I seem to remember one match where I was rather keen to get the game finished. I think it was against Pakistan. (laughs) And um, I thought, if we can finish it today, I can go to Ascot tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. 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 um, there was only about 40 minutes left and we, we still had 60 or 70 to win. And I thought, well, I've got to go in and start from, from ball one. This isn't in the book, incidentally. <laughs> Quite a lot of things aren't in the book. I'm going to do an appendix at some stage. Um, and I thought, if I just had half a pint of beer, it'd just loosen me up. And I asked the other guys, I said, I said, look, has anybody got any, any objection? If I have a half pint of beer before I go out, no, go on, Captain. <laughs> I, I think, I, yeah, I think I was Captain. Anyway, I absolutely pinged it all around the ground for half an hour, and I went to Ascot the next day. <laughs> <laughs> this was that was, of course, the 1962 Javed Berkey's team, which got absolutely obliterated. I'd forgotten that you were the skipper of England at the time. Yeah. Um, and it was a terrible time for Javid Berkey. There were calls for him him to be brought home in disgrace, uh, sacked on the spot. And, of course, they brought out one of my all-time cricketing, well, one of the great bowlers of cricket history, Fazal Mahmoud, yes. at, in the fourth set. I think they flew, flew him in emergency from Pakistan. And so you faced the great Fazal. I have, I'd forgotten that. What was it like? Well, he was way past his best by the time I played him. In fact, I, I got 200 in Pakistan against him and he bowled 60 overs or 80 overs or 90 overs. Hmm. It was just very, very accurate. And he, and he bowled some very sort of in with good leg cutters. And um, oh, he was, you know, one of those great bowlers. But um, on that case, he was already well past it. So he lost his nip, as they say. Ted, I want to take you back to how you got into your cricketing career. You you went up to Cambridge in the sort of mid-50s uh, and you went to Jesus College, uh, Cambridge, which, of course, where the cricket ground is unusually there. It's part, of the co- it's part of the college grounds itself. And I played there a few times in, in the 70s. And always they pointed out to, when you went into bat, at, at deep, very deep mid-wicket, in fact, a very long way indeed, there was the college chapel. And we, we were always told when you went into bat that, Dexter had struck the ball so hard that it had hit the college chapel roof. Is that true? I don't know. I mean, it is possible. But I only played on that ground once. And I've told the story in the book. But you see, I'd been, I'd done two years in the, in the army in between school and Cambridge. And in fact, I had no intention of playing cricket at all when I got there. But that's another story, how I got started. Ted, you went up to Cambridge with a pretty good reputation as a cricketer, didn't you? You were in the Radley first 11 for, I think it was four years. Um, and he took, scored a lot of runs for them and took a lot of wickets for them. Then you'd had, as you say, you had national, national service. You played a little bit when you were in the army, weren't you? Though you nearly lost your appetite for cricket. Yes, I, I did. I just played, played a little bit. I got picked for the state side, the Nigrison side. And um, I had one very good innings, but, um, but but I hardly played. And I was quite certain in my own mind, you know, I've done two bloody years in the army, you know, no girls, you know, just mess life and bloody hard work it was in Malaya. And I was quite certain in my own mind that I was going to do some work, get my qualifications and um, spend a bit of time down the pub with the boys and hopefully meet a couple of girls and was going to just have a nice relaxed time. Fortunately, as it turns out, um, my older brother was already there. He was at Jesus two years ahead of me. He was in his last year. I was in my first year. And I said to him, you know, no, I'm not going to play cricket. And he said, 
well, you better bloody well change your mind because I've already put your name down for the freshman's trial. <laughs> and you better bloody well turn up. And any time I was starting to argue, you'd bring my dad into it. He said, oh. you know who's paying the bill, don't you? So we, we owe a huge, all England fans, all cricket fans, owe a huge debt of gratitude, don't we, to your, your brother and your, and your father. Absolutely. Yep. It was in the second year, and I was sitting having my dinner in, in the Jesus College Hall, and a bloke sits down next to me and says, you're Dexter, aren't you? A nice sort of chap you are. And who, are you, who might you be? I am captain of the Jesus College cricket side. said, you've never played for us. I said, well, could be. You've never invited me to play. Would you play? Uh, I said, yeah, given, you know, given today when I'm available. So there we were. And, and it, was their, <laughs> it was their best fixture against the, I think it was the gentleman of Norfolk, that sort of a side. And he, he asked me, he threw me the new ball. And I was always a bit quicker than I looked. And certainly for club players, I was a bit hasty. And um, I knocked over the first two or three, bang, bang, bang. And I said, thank you very much, Captain. You know, I have my little bowl and I've got a couple of wickets. I'm happy. No, no, he said, keep going. So we've never been in these lot before. So I kept going and I took nine all clean bowls. Not many people can say that. <laughs> And so we only had to get 30 or 40. He said, go on, open the innings. So I went in and I, I think I had received five balls or something. We knocked the runs off. A couple of sixes and it was all over. I never got invited again. <laughs> By then you were playing for the university side, I imagine. Who were your great sort of players on, in the same team as you? I suppose the best was Ozzie Wheatley. Ah, yes. The Morgan he went on to play for, yeah. Very good record at university. Um, a tribute in your book to Gamini Gunasina. Oh, well, Gammy, yes, Gammy was my captain in my second year. And he was a very he was a great cricketer, uh, leg spin bowler and hell of a batsman. And he got a lot of runs in the university match. I, I'm not sure he didn't get 200. I think you're right, Ted. I think he did. Which was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was just a little, little fellow, but a very good leg spinner. Um, I remember, let the years roll by, and I was down in Sri Lanka. Gamni was probably in his mid-50s, 60, and he invited us up for dinner, lovely party, and one of the others said to me, I think Gamni has already bowled out about 30 people in his discussion, in his conversation with me, and there wasn't a bad player amongst them. (laughs) (laughs) He was a great character, Gamni. So, Ted, you say you went up to Cambridge hoping to have a few pints down the pub and meet some women. But I don't think there were any women in Cambridge in 1957, bar a handful of blue stockings at Newnham. How did you get on? So it turned out, I went up market. London was the place for the girls. In London, there was a little gang of us, pals of mine from school and from from, uh, national service. And um, we were all healthy and we all had a few pounds in our pocket we were we were very lucky to meet some gorgeous young ladies and one in particular beautiful lady Shirley Bowden she was then and we were great pals for a while and then she sent me my dear John letter (laughs) on the morning of the Lord's test match when I was captain in Cambridge against Oxford saying that she'd met somebody else which was absolutely right for her but it was quite a quite a downer for me. <laughs> How did you perform at Lords under after that news? Hey, not very well, but, but we won the match. That's the main thing. Well, that's an important thing. But you did, fortunately, I think, not very long after you you met your future wife Susan, didn't you? I did indeed. Yes, it was a party given by ex Eleventh Hussars. I did my national service with the Eleventh Hussars, and it was a party given by one of them. And um, I, I drove down with a great friend, John Churchill. I played all my golf with him. He was driving, and um, walked into the party. First person I met was Susan, and she—I can never remember. 
But there are, I, I said, do you mind if I sit next to you? Or whether she said, come and sit down next to me. But we were firm friends from then on. And you proposed before you set off to Australia in 62-3, didn't you? Yes, we, we'd been, we, we didn't have a formal engagement, I don't think. But, but we, we were going to get married if all, all was normal. And so that's the, the engagement just before I went to Australia. And you're still going strong, what, 60, 60 years on? Yeah, 63. Wonderful. Ted, I think I'm right in saying your your father-in-law was a, a um, uh, was a cricketer as well, and I think I'm right in saying your uh, Susan's family weren't all that keen on having another cricketer in in the family. Is that is that true? <laughs> well, when Susan went down for the weekend to her mum's mum and dad's retirement cottage in Bracknell, which in those days was such a pretty little place, now it's a sort of concrete jungle. And she said, oh, by the way, I've met a lovely man. Oh, yes. Oh, his name's uh, Ted Dexter. He's at university. He's on the, on, the, on the cricket team. And her mum said, oh, no, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> her husband had been a great cricketer. And, and um, his working life was in India. And he captained the state side. And he captained the state side to win the Ranji Trophy for Bengal in the first time in their history. So he, he captained Bengal, your father-in-law. Mm, yes. Gosh, that's in the that is in the Ranji Trophy in what the thirties? Uh, Probably the thirties. How fascinating! I would think so. I know that cricket was a very big part of his life, and there's family background because um, when. We, Susie and I go, now go to the, I've forgotten the name of the ground in Calcutta, but the huge ground there. Eden, Eden Gardens. Eden Gardens. And when she walks in, she turns to the left. She can say hello to Grandpa, who was their first, he's a Garnet. He was their first president and lovely big portrait of him. And then go out to lunch and then the first one you see is Tom Longfield. So they know Susan better than they know me. <laughs> so, oh, Mimsad, Mimsad Longfield, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just tagging along. Tell us how you get into playing for Sussex, because having been born in Milan, you're open to go anywhere. What was it that led you to play for Sussex? Yes, well, I was seriously courted by Warwickshire and Worcestershire, and Sussex hadn't really been in my mind, nor... I mean, I, I didn't have really have any views. I suppose I wasn't, in fact, absolutely committed to playing anyway. And then it was Robin Marlow who rang me up and said, I hear you've been people talking to you from Warwickshire and Worcestershire. He said, you, you don't want to do that. He, he said, do you want to come down and play at home? Robin Marlow was then, or Mad Marlow, as he was often known, was then the captain of Sussex, or a good one, wasn't he? Yes, well, he had his moment. <laughs> Uh, that's very that's very diplomatic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in that first season you played for Sussex, nineteen fifty seven, you you were playing as an amateur, of course. You declined to play for Sussex at one point because you were in Denmark for um and you declined for romantic reasons, didn't you? I think at that stage I'd hardly played for Sussex. Mm. That had been my first invitation to play. Right. But there was a Cambridge University tour to Denmark. Um, Gammy Gamagunazina organised it. And so we, we went over and we, we, we played some very good cricket out there. It was good fun. And um, anyway, I met this delightful young lady. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, she, uh, for instance, she, she said, you know, have you got a couple of days off? We'll go up to my grandpa's place up on the North Sea. So we had a really jolly time together. And and then I sort of suddenly remembered, my God, I ought to be playing for Sussex. <laughs> <laughs> what was Robin Marler's attitude towards this dereliction of cricketing duty? I think they were dumbfounded, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing they had you back. It's another world. It's another <laughs> world of cricket, isn't it? Yes. You could, you could send a telegram. Yes. I don't know what to make of this bloke. <laughs> He's rather spent his time in a castle in the north coast of Denmark, but playing cricket for Sussex. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. Now, 
There's one thing about your captaincy of, of Sussex, which I'd love to get your observations about, because you, you were a very innovative captain. You understood how to win the Gillette Cup, which nobody else did, i.e. one-day cricket, and you did it with seamers. Now, fast forward to today, and you look at the one-day game, and it's dominated by spinners, in particularly wrist spinners, which you more or less abolished. How do you explain that? Well, I think it's one of the wonderful things, the only one of the few good things about very short games of cricket is that it's turned out that wrist spinners are a very good bet. I'm just waiting for some captain who's going to go into the game with four wrist spinners. Nathan Lehman was saying to us, who's the England team sort of statistician stroke strategist, that he that that's exactly what's happened. He says they're still underrated in the one-day game. And he, he was doing the selection or the analysis for the Multan Sultans in the Pakistan League. And he bought three leg spinners. Three. Yeah. I would be looking for, for four leg for four leggers, I think. Because I mean the most productive shot these days is the pickup over mid wicket, isn't it? I mean that's the moment it's just short of a length or something, they just go swing the bat, cross bat, bang, out out there. But that's the one shot you can't get away with more than once or twice against a leg spinner because that's the whole idea that it bounces and turns and it goes up in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it, it's one of the great developments. There's, there's room for, really room for everybody. When you won the first two Gillette Cups for Sussex, which I think the first silverware they'd ever won, you eliminated spinners, didn't you, from the, the Sussex team and you... You had very good medium paces in that Sussex side, and you you contained oppositions and strangled them. Wasn't that that was your your basic plan? And that yeah. was a... well, I I listened to other captains, you know, because everybody was talking about this new competition. I was listening to some of the players and the captains saying what they would do and what they could do and what they couldn't do, and I thought they were all on the wrong track, really. And um, to me, it was simple. You just you were trying to stop them scoring. You weren't necessarily trying to get them out. Of course, you do get them out if they can't score, because then they have to take chances, and then you get them out that way. And um, I mean, it was, it was Trevor Bailey at Essex, who was the then the very good medium pace bowler, test test bowler, very good record. And he had a way of talking which was quite amusing. Everybody does it in cricket. He said, to this one day cricket, he said, if I can put my fielders where I want to, no batsman on earth will get more than one or two and over. I can promise you that. And um, I think we went to Essex and I think we took 10 and over off him (laughs) because he was still bowling sort of short of a length and straight. And that is the ball. That's the most productive ball. To me, it was perfectly clear. You've got to channel where the batsman hit it. And then you put your fielders in the right place and bowlers bowl well. So my orders to my bowlers were you don't have to think about a thing. All you've got to think is every ball hitting the stumps. If it's wide, it's a bad ball. If it's short and going over the top, it's a bad ball. I want every ball straight and you don't have to think about anything. I will set the field because all batsmen are different. Some hit it better this side, others this, that side. And um, and I, I stopped them getting the singles, had two little close men and then funnel the fielders out like that, kept the ball up. And actually it still works today, you know. And when I'm watching, I'm saying, get it up the other end for Christ's sake, get it up there, get it up there. When they because when they're short, bang, 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 it goes all over the place. So I was I was right. And so you brought your finely honed Cambridge brain to bear on the situation, but you had a great partnership, didn't you, with Jim Parks, your keeper batsman? Oh, he was he was just a superb superb cricketer. Jim, he could do anything as he proved. He was a beautiful slip field. He was a beautiful cover point. He was a lovely, fluent player with a bat and wound up keeping wicket for England. I mean, he just took up wicket-keeping because he knew he couldn't get in to the England team otherwise. So he's a lovely man, wonderful to bat with, generous, 
but in an amazing skill with the ball. Whatever little, anything with a ball or something in his fingers, I mean, if somebody produced a little new game or something where you had to, like, shove Hapney or you had to flick a ball to play football or something like that, you didn't play against Jim Parks. You were, you were about 10 nil before you'd started. And, and as a fielder, you know, when he was fielding, I mean, if he, if he threw it from cover, he'd prob probably hitting the stumps. Brilliant, brilliant ball player. Ted, you've um, written in your book quite a lot about the, the influence of the 1960s on your life and the sort of shift, the, the, the change in social life, change in music um, that it brought with you. Though you say you still prefer Frank Sinatra to the Beatles, even when the Beatles came in. And you're still, I think, a great lover of Frank Sinatra, which um, i just ask you in parenthesis, what's your favourite Sinatra number? Um, Songs for Swinging Lovers. It's a beautiful album. It's a classic, absolute yeah. classic. Susan mm. and I did all our courting, listening to Songs for Swinging Lovers. In that early 60s period, you became, I think, really the first cricketer I can remember who had, so to say, a life outside cricket that you read about. I mean, we, re we read about all sorts of things about you. We read about your love of cars, aeroplanes, golf, horse racing, and of course, your, you know, your beautiful model wife, Susan, got a lot of uh, attention in the media. If I may say so, I think Susan was the first cricketing wag that we read about and we've um the the, the susan influence is what did it mm. um because she was an absolute knockout so we did make a pretty handsome couple i think i think you did i'd love the story in your book about um susan susan used to model for hardy amos and she used to model for the queen didn't she and she had the queen gave, gives a lovely remark when they were talking about a theft from barbara hutton yes Yes, that, that one I got right in the book. The other one I didn't, the, the Queen said, um, apparently she'd had all her, she'd had a whole lot of emeralds, apparently. They said that they were stolen. And the Queen said to her, oh, well, actually, Barbara never really liked her emeralds. <laughs> so that's a consolation. So they... but the one I got wrong was that it was the Queen Mother she was showing for when she was just bowing out, walking backwards, and suddenly the Queen Mother said, Do thee! Do thee! You see, and she nearly tripped over herself, etc. and she was actually calling her Corgi. Tell <laughs> <Yeah>. you, <laughs> <laughs> as I said, you were, there was a lot of publicity in these, those early 60s about, um, you know, about your personal life. Cricketers and sort of sports people generally in the 60s became, as it were, much more interesting and perhaps commercially marketable in the 60s. But do you think you were made to share too much of your personal life in the media for strangers? And looking at cricketers today, do they get? Do you think they get too little privacy? Um, well, I think it goes, goes with the job, I think. And perhaps in those days, sportsmen were very low in the sort of social pecking order. You know, there was, I'm making a decision, that was I going to be a professional or an amateur? But to be a professional, you were paid peanuts. And if you remember, that was still the £10 maximum for footballers. Mm. £10 a week maximum, isn't it, I think? £10 a week. Mm. Yeah. So if you were a college boy, you really weren't going to settle for £10 a week. And the other thing was that counties had to be captained by amateurs. No professional had ever captained a county and hadn't captained England. And sportsmen, I mean, it's ridiculous now. I mean, now sportsmen are much revered and richer than Croesus and everything. But in those days, you know, you're a sportsman. You know, you're down, down the pecking order. And so, but you were part of a new generation, weren't you, in cricket, you had Dexter, Cowdery, in racing, you know, you 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 love going to Ascot, but you know, there you have that's the age of Piggott and O'Brien. So there is a sort of sudden rise in status. That was a change, um, not least. I mean, Jimmy Hill broke the the ceiling on footballers. I mean, it was the world was run then by sort of county heavyweights with their big houses in the country and, and the military 
there was a definite sort of pecking order and sportsmen were way down the list. And certainly I had to, if, if I'd been a pro, I wouldn't have got any of that publicity at all, whatever I did. Mm. Because they were, you know, they're just chaps who did the work and entertained us, you know. So you never went pro at all in your career? Well, I, I was a sort of pro right at the end when I'd finished playing county cricket and I wasn't playing test cricket. And we started the International Cavaliers. Oh, yes. That, that's, but when you were a county cricketer, I had, you, were, you were one of Mr. E.R. Dexter, an amateur. Yeah. That's and right. you'd made that decision because you really was a dog's life being a, a being being a pro. Yes, I mean, if you, you, I mean, for me, I wasn't going to play cricket all my life. I was playing cricket and then thinking to the future what what I'd be doing and what I might not be doing, which was difficult. I mean, if, if I hadn't been so successful, I wouldn't have played as long as I did. Formerly, amateur status is abolished, wasn't it, in '62? So. Must have played at least your remaining county career as a, at least nominally as a professional from '63 onwards. Is that right? Well, no, they they abolished the term amateurs and professionals. Oh. They said everybody is now a cricketer. Oh. You can either take money or you or you don't. Oh. And in my case, as far as Sussex were concerned, I I, I wouldn't have changed. I wasn't going to take any money for playing for Sussex. Uh, nor for England. No. You didn't get paid even for playing for England? No. Were you in a separate... This is... Uh, I hadn't realised this, actually. So we're talking here about the early 60s. Uh, and so, did you have separate changing rooms for still for because you were an amateur? Yes. You had a lovely little changing room at Hove sort of on, the, on the second floor of the stand. And the senior pro we used to use the captain's changing room. And all the rest of the lads were down in the down in the basement. <laughs> did they, they and those Sussex team your Sussex teammates? Did they call you Mister Dexter? I think they probably did to start with. Later on, they may have. I don't suppose John Snow called me Mister Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> he probably had a few choice epithets for you from time to time. I imagine <laughs> he was quite fiery. But I take I take credit for. Making Snowy into the international bowler he was. When he came to me, absolutely sort of out of the blue, he was a clergyman's son, I think. Yes. And he, he was really a sort of free, free spirit, you know. Cricket was something that he did. And anyway, he, he right from the beginning, he was just this superb movement. movement. I mean, right, he just John Snow running out, around the outfield was... A beautiful thing to watch, so lithe and so. But he used to run out. He was quick and and awkward, but he used to step to the side and bowl big in swingers. And you know, top batsmen they don't mind in swingers because if they get an inside edge, it's it's not out. It hits their body. If it hits the outside edge, and they're getting caught here. So after a season or so, I had a session with with John and we, I said, come on, you know, if you want to go to the top, you've got to be able to run straight through and not do this. You've got to be able to do that. And um, Robin Marlow, he, he says, yes, it was definitely you, me. And we got out a few chairs and made him, made him run. You couldn't do that because he crashed into the chair and got him just running through this way, and then he got the feel of it. And he, he'd done a bit of work as a PE teacher. So he understood the mechanics of the body, and he, he got it very quickly. That's fascinating, because mm. it was those outswingers, of course, which won England, the Ashes, Ray Lingworth's Ashes team in 1771, the Ashes. Marvellous, absolutely marvellous. And so it's interesting, the effect of what you did in the early 60s, one England and Ashes series nearly a decade later. I think, I think it helped, certainly. And um, John Snow, what really pleased me was that if he was ever talking to other fast bowlers later on, right, he made an absolute virtue of being able to bowl down the width of your shoulders all the way through. You go this way, you're inside here, you bowl it, 
you don't, your arm doesn't fly out to the side, you bowl it, everything's in here, and you run straight through, and, which is what I taught him to do. He was well, teaching somebody else. Uh, that was, the whole fast bowling world owes, owes you a great debt of gratitude, Ted. Ted, I'd like to take you through a little bit of your, your test career. Certainly your, your entry into test cricket was quite, um, was quite difficult to begin with, wasn't it? I mean, you were flown out from Paris, of all places, to, to Australia as relief in um, 90, a very unsuccessful England tour of 1958-59. And um, you weren't very successful in Australia. And I'm very struck by something in your book. You had developed a sort of basic flaw in technique... And the person who spotted it was was John Mortimer, you know, Gloucestershire. It was another replacement, and he was primarily a bowler. I think it's quite striking that um, that he should be the, the person who helps you out and not the um, the management or the captain or even a specialist batsman. Freddie Brown was our manager, and Freddie was a wonderful. He was a very good leg spin bowler, Freddie, and he spent a long time with me in the nets. I said, I don't know what's wrong. I can't hit the bloody thing. And he tried to sort me out, but he just didn't get anywhere. And I didn't get anywhere. And I was pretty depressed about the whole thing until I got to New Zealand when I knew I was going to play in the test match because we'd had quite a few injuries. There were probably only 12 of us left in New Zealand. I knew I was going to play. And it was John Mortimer who picked up on a very simple thing, you know, that I was just holding the bat in a funny way. I don't know how I'd come to do it, but I did. And I changed the bat 30 degrees. And immediately I was, then the one thing I could always do was to time the ball and hit the ball. And uh, I got it back immediately. Mm. And I went, I played one of my best test innings really, because when I got into bat against New Zealand, all, all the big noises were already out. You know, May and Cowdery and, and we were, five or six weeks, no, four or five weeks down when I got in there. And I got 140 and won the match. I played like I knew I could play. That, that, that turned you around, didn't it? That sort of turned around your whole career, test career. Yeah, it, it must have been very tough, that Aussie tour, when you failed, didn't you? And failing in an Ashes series when so much was at stake. The thing I can say in my, my defence was that when I got out there, we were already being thrashed. They were already covered test matches. No, no I, I, also it was your first tour. But what I mean is for you, per, that's what you went through personally, the huge exposure, the spotlight on you, it must have been very, very difficult. Well, there, there wasn't huge exposure on me. I mean, I was just a young bloke who'd come out. I mean, basically, they, they were looking for me to fall, and, and I did. So I, I didn't get much coverage, a little bit. Um, there was the Adelaide Evening Newspaper who ran a piece which was headed the man from Cambridge with the Oxford accent. <laughs> but I didn't get much because I was, I was doing no good. I wasn't getting any runs. We were still getting beaten in the test matches. And I played a couple of test matches and I didn't do any good. That was a, a very controversial tour, wasn't it? it? was the Australians had these bowlers that threw and bowlers that, that dragged, didn't they? And it was, it was very hard to play against them, wasn't it? Yeah, well, throws have always been very difficult. Mm-hmm. By and large, they've disappeared from the game, which is just except except for the spinners. Some of them, they they get caught out. So doing a bit of this. <laughs> well, it's the mystery ball, isn't it? That, that, that defeated so many, that um, caused so many to throw, isn't it? The the Doosra, the only one who could bowl it legally, everybody thinks was um, a Sakhalin Mushtaq, what a very Pakistan had a very pure action, but all his imitators. And at Tet, I, when you play social, recreational cricket, as I still do, you see the most extraordinary number of bowlers still throwing. It's really quite striking. You see a lot of young bowlers chucking, and nobody's obviously corrected them. Well, it's a funny one now, because the umpires are, n- uh, are not permitted to no ball on the field. And the reason for that is... <laughs> The famous day when um, I think it was on Illingworth's tour, and there was a one-day match, and the umpires called called a ball for for, for throwing, a bowler for throwing. I can't remember if it was the England bowler or, or who. And so this the captain threatened to take his 
team off the field and they've got 40 or 50,000 people in the ground. <laughs> they, you know, they just couldn't, couldn't deal with that. So they, the rule now is that they can't no ball somebody on the field for throwing. They just make a report and then the guy has to do some remedial stuff and he goes away and he comes back, particularly the spinners, and he's learned to keep his arm nice and straight like that. And then it gets in a match when it gets really important and whoop, it, comes, it comes back pretty quickly. Ted, you've been, always been a great hero for so many people who love cricket. But there was one moment when I think a number of us felt let, let down, when you were the England selector and you didn't choose Gawa for the tour. I remember hating you for that because you stood for everything which was so beautiful about the game and so did Gawa. And you did not choosing him for the India tour because it appeared that he, somehow he politically didn't fit or something. Really upsetting, actually. Oh, it became a great cause celeb. And they had an MCC vote of no confidence. <laughs> but that was not passed. There was a very irritating editor of the Telegraph, who was a great pal of Gower's. And he orchestrated all this stuff and made it a cause celeb. In fact, David had been nursing an injury, uh, a shoulder injury. Ah. And of course, he wanted to keep playing because he was getting paid. And in those days, they didn't have central contracts. If they didn't play, they didn't get paid. And there was a perfectly good case for giving him a rest and hoping that this shoulder thing would settle down. Now, perhaps wrongly, um, you know, I didn't explain myself. Uh, I was brought up, you know, never complain, never explain. So I just said, look, you know, selection committees, and you sit down, suddenly, you know, there are only 11 places in the side and you've already filled them up with him, him and him and him and him. We've got one place left. And there was this doubt about David. And, and so I think Mike Gatting was selected. Um, but there were, there were reasons. It wasn't just, certainly not that his face didn't fit or anything personal, because we've always got on very well personally. No, he's a very charming and easygoing man. He was so right for India too, I think. He had a sort of expansive, he enjoyed India, whereas some of the, Graham Gooch, for instance, took a very kind of a provincial line about India. You know, he didn't like the food, he didn't like the, you know, he didn't the, kind of the... Uh, sorry, sorry to break in there. Yeah. I mean, people have never, ever taken on what actually happened on that tour with Graham Gooch. The main thing that happened was that Air India went on strike. And India is a huge continent, as big as bloody Europe. And they had to travel in buses and trains and they had an absolutely rotten time of it off the field. And they caught the sort of local bugs. And when I went out there, which we were doing very poorly, and I thought I'd better go out there and give them my support, which is gospel truth. I invited the manager and the captain, Graham Gooch, to dinner. And Graham... Gooch, he'd, he'd gone down, bang like that on the table, out for the count before we got to the soup. And, and all the others, they, was, they were all feeling terrible. It wasn't they didn't like the food, they just couldn't, couldn't eat any food. They were, they were in, in terrible, terrible way. And just one of those things that the tour starts to go wrong, but, but the Air India strike was the main reason. Ted, there was one issue you mentioned in your book, Ben. You were on that India tour. You were rather mocked in the media for raising it, but in, you were actually way ahead of your time. And you talked about the, the impact on the players of polluted air and low air quality on that India tour. And that's very much a live issue uh, today. It's got, got even worse. And there's an article in, in Wisdom. Oh, in Calcutta. It was unbelievable in those days. And I'd just been in the dressing room and I'd heard... You know, a couple of them were sort of coughing their guts up and everybody, everybody was in such a poor way. And then 
I happened to be watching the game with an eminent physician. And I started talking to him about pollution, etc. And I said, what, what's, what's the effect of this on, on trained athletes? And he told me exactly. He said, well, it's, it couldn't be worse. Then they're, they're going to suffer more than anybody. And he gave me all this stuff. And we moved on from there to an out-country out game. And I was just sitting with some guys, some of the press guys, around the pool. And, and I told them about this. I, I said it was a very interesting conversation. And I'm going to raise it when we get back to England because I don't want to see another team come out here and, and suffer in the way that they are. And um, there were two of the press guys who weren't at my chat session with the guys, but they just heard about it. And they thought, right, we'll get him here. And they get they headlined it, you know, Dexter's, you know, ridiculous excuse for poor England performance and all that. But that's that's part of the course. That's what happens. Well, that is, you're way ahead of your time, as I say, in, in a way, because there's a, a big article uh, in this year's Wisdom you may have seen on cricket and the environment, and it mentions exactly exactly that problem, particularly at grounds on the Indian subcontinent. Tell you, you mentioned in at the end of your book, you mentioned the sort of successful initiatives that you took in cricket, promoting one, including promoting one-day cricket, making sure that bats were made of wood, um, regulations on ball stitching, the present ICC player rating system, which is a very important one, promoting four-day county cricket, first central contracts for England players. But looking back on your whole playing and administrative career. I, I missed one there, which was annoying. Um, I missed one in the book. I missed one in the book? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, which was quite a big part of it. It was the, um, the Spirit of Cricket initiative. Oh, tell us about that one. Oh, really? That was you, yeah, was it? Yes. That yeah. was absolutely me. And I must say, I was slightly miffed. But anyway, it was me. I'd I'd been hearing from all over that the the behaviour of schools cricket, there was an incident at Radley I heard about where it was just absolutely out of order, people behaving disgracefully on the field and off. And I heard a lot of this stuff coming coming back from the, from the, the amateur game. And then I thought of golf and... Rule one, we have laws in cricket and we have rules in golf, but rule one used, used to be, it isn't now, um, was the etiquette of the game. And it's set out quite clearly, you know, this is the game where you behave properly, you did this, you did this, you don't do that, that, that. And I thought, well, what about cricket? Have we got anything like that? And I looked all through the laws and there was only one mention that in fair and unfair play, and it said the captain should be responsible not only to play the game within the laws, but within the spirit of the game. And that was the only mention in the whole of our great big laws law book. And I said, well, we think we know what the spirit of the game is, but people have obviously forgotten what the spirit of the game is to play it in a chivalrous way, etc. So perhaps we'd better do something about it. So um, it was absolutely my initiative. And Colin Cowdery worked with me on the programme. I was a bit miffed when they, at the, the end of it all, they have the, the Cowdery lecture <laughs> rather than the Dexter lecture. <laughs> but what I would say, Ted, is... It's so appropriate that because the way you've conducted yourself throughout your long and great career, you have always enhanced the game. You've always stood for a magnificent attitude towards it. You've given, I know I'm speaking not just for Richard and me, but for everybody listening to this podcast and more than that, everybody who loves the game of cricket, you have stood up for a wonderful attitude, a great spirit, a sort of chivalry about playing the game. And we're all... I mean, it's been a, such a pleasure and honour to talk to you, sir, and hear your views. I, I'm, we, it's been an utter joy. 
Indeed. Um, now, Ted, we will go to uh, pause this appeal for, um, from Mike Atherton on behalf of the MCC Foundation, which you're also benefiting very generously from your book. At 60 centres across the UK, we provide free cricket coaching and match play to more than 2,500 talented young players from disadvantaged and underserved backgrounds, driving diversity in the game, supporting mental well-being, empowering and inspiring talented players of any race, gender or background to have confidence and to progress in the game. Thanks to the Big Give Christmas Challenge from midday on December the 1st to midday on December the 8th, online donations to MCC Foundation can be doubled. Please donate and help us to transform lives this Christmas. A donation of just £20 will give a young player the opportunity of 10 weeks of coaching. One donation, twice the impact. For more information, search MCCF Big Give. Very good cause, um, Ted, giving um, disadvantaged boys and girls access to cricket, access to cricket coaching, and I'm sure they'll be giving them access They'll be doing that in the spirit of cricket, which um, you've done such a great deal to promote. So thank you so much, uh, Lord Ted Dexter. It, <laughs> it's been such a pleasure. It's goodbye from me, Peter Oborn in Wiltshire. And it's goodbye from me, Richard Heller in South East London. Well, thank you both. It's been fun. <laughs>